welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Pharmaceutical companies spend billions of dollars annually to influence physicians and other drug prescribers to write more prescriptions for their products. In fact, the majority of their marketing budget for most of them is dedicated to direct contact with doctors. So who's preparing today's students to know where to draw the line when the pharmaceutical reps come calling? Dr. Elizabeth Gunderson, that's who. She's the Director of Ethics at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, Florida. Today, Dr. Gunderson will talk about physicians' vulnerability to the pharmaceutical industry and the ethics class she teaches to prepare students for the day when they will become practicing physicians. As we begin, Dr. Gunderson talks about why she started teaching ethics. So one of the reasons that I went into medical education is, in a sense, so that I could teach students before they became full-fledged physicians. Um, I like to catch the apples before they fall from the tree and make them aware of these marketing practices that pharmaceutical companies have. And I think that's one thing that when people think about pharmaceutical companies, that they don't necessarily consider that these are marketing companies as well. And in general, when young men and women decide that they want to be physicians, they're thinking about curing disease, helping their patients, caring about people. And they're not thinking about that business side of medicine. And so I think it's important that we teach them about this while they're still in medical school. Sure. And and I'm sure that they don't think of it in terms of that is very valuable, just the ability to influence their prescribing practices. They're not thinking about that at all. They're just thinking about what's the best medicine, right? Exactly. And when a pharmaceutical representative or drug rep, uh, as we call them, knocks on your door and they say, hey, you know, here's this new drug that's on the market. Let me tell you about it. Well, that's a fast and easy way for a student or a resident or a physician to get information about the drug, or so it seems. Um, but we, what we want to guard against is the fact that that can have undue influence over our prescribing habits and the information that the pharmaceutical companies are presenting may not be on the level. Um, and that's just something to, to really consider. So in 2012, Pharmaceutical companies spent $24 billion marketing to physicians, and they spent another $3 billion marketing to consumers. And just common sense will tell you that they would not be spending that much money if they weren't getting a return on their investment. And most of that is for direct contact with the physicians, isn't it? Exactly. Um, So what happens is that a pharmaceutical representative might come to a physician's private practice office and offer them a free lunch, offer them notepads that have the 
pharmaceutical company Insignia offer them a pen. And I think what is really difficult for the medical students is to consider the fact that a sandwich or a pen might have influence over them, but there is study after study in the literature that actually demonstrates that it does. So there was a study that came out um, not too long ago that actually looked at physicians that just received one single meal, one lunch, and we're talking about their prescribing practices after receiving that single meal. And they actually showed that they would prescribe the drug more after a single meal. And the more meals they got, the more they prescribed the drug. So why is, if it's a good drug, why is that a bad thing? Well, it, it, it is not necessarily a bad thing, but that's what you have to consider. Are you prescribing the drug just because it's the shiny new object that was just dangled in front of you in your office? Or is that, in fact, the first-line medication that's recommended for that condition? So we have recommendations that are backed by scientific evidence that say, okay, if a patient has high blood pressure, this is the drug or these are the drugs that you should prescribe first. Sometimes then a drug company will come in, market a new drug, and wow, this sounds great. And I just learned all these helpful new things about this drug from this drug rep that I had a nice lunch with. And the next thing you know, you might find yourself prescribing that drug. It's not necessarily the first line drug for that condition. And so you really just have to be judicious about considering these new drugs as they come about. So it seems as though there's a lot of gray area here in terms of your interaction with some of these drug reps and even figuring out where there's real conflicts of interest and where there are not. So do you have some hard and fast uh, guidelines? Right. Well, as, as with ethics in general, um, there tend to be a lot of gray areas here um, because conflicts of interest in and of themselves don't necessarily mean that wrongdoing is happening. Um, but it's something that you have to just cast a, a critical light on and consider very carefully. So there are recommendations that are uh, published by the American Medical Association about dealings with pharmaceutical companies. And they say that, hey, it, it actually is okay to have lunch or to speak for a drug company, um, but they also urge physicians not to be biased. And that's where you can come into some of that gray area um, because nobody likes to admit that they're biased. And so it really requires an open mind. On your course, I had a chance to, to uh, go through the PowerPoint presentation of the course and get a, a little bit of a sense for, for it. You cover so many different topics. So one thing that you talked about that really fascinated me was industry and academia's involvement in research and clinical trials. And I think that there's a cautionary uh, a, or a word of caution as far as this is concerned and their involvement together. Can you speak to that? So again, this is a case where the American Medical Association doesn't say no, physicians can't collaborate with industry to drive the development of new drugs and new therapies that can help our patient. But you have to realize who your partners are and how that might influence the outcomes. And also, we 
we presume that the pharmaceutical companies are being on the level. And that's not to say that most aren't, but there have been some notable instances where pharmaceutical companies have uh, withheld um, information um, from their published studies. And I think one of the most notable ones is the story of uh, Vioxx, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory medication that was released by Merck in about 1999. And there were several studies that were published that showed fewer side effects, um, namely the stomach, uh, the gastrointestinal bleeding and ulcers that you get with other inflammatory drugs. So there were less of these side effects with this medication. And so we as physicians, and this was when I was very early on in, in, in my um, medical career, we started prescribing this um, in, in great amounts, um, thinking it was a wonderful drug. And then the issue was, is that the data that was published in the New England Journal mentioned only some of the heart attacks and cardiovascular events that were also side effects of this drug. Um, but in fact, the drug company had data showing that more people on this drug than other drugs had serious heart problems or died. And so this was a case when, where the drug company was just floridly dishonest in withholding that type of information. And it caused people to have heart attacks. It caused deaths um, because by the time they pulled the drug from the market, so many people had died as a side effect. 20 million people used it to treat crippling pain, but just two weeks ago, Vioxx is pulled from store shelves after it's linked to a high risk of heart attack and stroke. Now the lawsuits are starting to mount. Tonight, only on Eyewitness News, Derek Valcourt sits down with a Maryland woman who was one of the first to file suit. She tells why she blames the drug for her heart attack in this exclusive report. We fixed it. Lisa Williams says she's been suffering for the last five years. In an exclusive interview with Eyewitness News, she says she blames Vioxx, the prescription painkiller yanked off the market two weeks ago. You're taking a medication to help you, and you it ends up hurting you and almost destroying your life. Her doctor prescribed Vioxx for a painful foot problem five years ago. Otherwise, she says she was extremely healthy with no history of heart disease in her family. One month later, while jogging, her life changed forever. I was coming home and on the front lawn of my grandmother's house when I felt this sudden excruciating pain in my chest, which caused me to collapse. It was a heart attack, and since then, Lisa Williams has undergone heart surgeries, suffers from angina, and takes a whole host of prescription medications. She says she's lost all of her energy, and as a result, lost her job as well. I just feel my future has become uncertain. Williams soon suspected Vioxx was part of the problem, and last year, she filed a lawsuit against the drug's manufacturer. Philadelphia attorney Tom Klein represents Williams and hundreds of other people who have now come forward to sue Merck. He claims the company put profit over safety. Merck knew, understood, and had all of the data in its possession that this was more and more known to be a health risk in 2001, 2002, and 2003. And yet it took them till 2004, till thousands of people suffered heart attacks and strokes for them to pull it off the market. And that is wrong. It's a really sobering story. And in some ways, it actually then speaks for the fact that, hey, 
if if the drug companies are going to be funding research studies, maybe it's a good thing for physicians to be involved because physicians can actually um, help to make sure that there's a level in, of integrity that's being adhered to. So one one thing you might see. So this may be a um, a little bit of an outlier in terms of the the level of of withholding of information here. The flip side to that is that um, when we talk about educating our medical students, we also educate them on how to read studies and evaluate them and to identify gaps or weaknesses in the studies um, so that they can potentially look at a study that's supporting a new drug or a new therapy and they can say like, well, you know, this doesn't necessarily hold water. So I don't know if I buy into what the study is saying. In your course, you talk about absolute risk and relative risk. Why are those concepts important in the context of ethics? Well, speaking of gray areas, this is an area where how you present information um, can actually make a difference. So this is a way to present information and spin it in a certain way where you're being honest, but you may be being misleading as well. So absolute risk describes how often a condition happens in a population, and then relative risk compares the probability of something happening in an exposed group versus an unexposed group. And so what we can do is present benefits in relative terms and risks in absolute terms, and that way you can exaggerate benefits and minimize risks. For adults with an advanced lung cancer called squamous non-small cell, previously treated with platinum-based chemotherapy, it's not every day something this big comes along. A chance to live longer. With Octivo, Nivolumab. Optivo is the first and only immunotherapy FDA-approved based on a clinical trial demonstrating longer life for these patients. In fact, Optivo significantly increased the chance of living longer versus chemotherapy. Optivo is different. It works with your immune system. Optivo can cause your immune system to attack normal organs and tissues in your body and affect how they work. This may happen anytime during or after treatment is ended and may become serious and lead to death. See your doctor right away if you experience new or worsening cough, chest pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, severe stomach pain or tenderness, severe nausea or vomiting, loss of appetite, swollen ankles, extreme fatigue, constipation, brash, or muscle or joint pain, as this may keep these problems from becoming more serious. These are not all the possible side effects of Upbevo. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions, including immune system problems, or if you've had an organ transplant or lung breathing or liver problems. A chance to live longer. Ask your doctor if Opdivo is right for you. Bristol Myers Squibb thanks the patients and physicians who participated in the Opdivo clinical trial. This ad was featured in an article about direct-to-consumer advertising. The ad states in text that the drug reduces the risk of dying by 41%. So that sounds great. But the next slide has text stating that the overall survival rate is only 3.2 months longer. And then something that they left off is the fact that the extension of the median progression-free survival was only 21 days. And that's not even stated in the ad. Dr. Gunderson speaks to the correlation between industry payments and positive study outcomes. I talk 
talked about that study. It's a current, it's a, it's a recent study. It's from 2018. And it basically, it's a, it's a systematic review, which means it's a review of a, a bunch of, of different studies. And in this case, they were reviewing studies about robotic surgery research. And basically, they were looking at the studies and whether the study's outcomes supported robotic surgery or not. And they looked also at the payments to physicians involved with a study to see if there was any correlation between how much uh, industry payments physicians received and the outcome of the study. So basically, they found this magic number of about $9,500. And if the authors had received those industry payments of greater than about $9,500, that predicted positive findings. So if you got over that amount of money, there was a correlation between um, that money and the outcome of the study. The Open Payments Database is a national disclosure program that promotes a more transparent and accountable healthcare system by making financial relationships between applicable manufacturers and the healthcare providers, such as physicians and teaching hospitals. It makes it readily available to the public. So a lot of people are unaware of this, um, but starting um, several years ago, um, there is now this open payments database that's run for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, that is online. And so if you just Google open payments database, you'll find this website. And this was part of um, a larger piece of legislation called the Physician Payment Sunshine Act. So nowadays, when physicians receive money from a drug company, Anything in the amount of $100 per year or greater has to be reported, and it goes to this website, and it's actually really pretty easy to navigate. You go to this um, website, it's openpaymentsdata.cms.gov, and you can type in the name of your doctor, um, of your hospital, and you can actually get a breakdown of how much money they receive from drug companies. So why is that important to your average consumer out there? Well, again, um, as with the um, drug advertisements on TV, this allows you to have an open and honest conversation with your doctor. Because let's say I have cancer and my physician recommends a certain type of chemotherapy to me. And then I look at this website and I see, wow, my physician has received a lot of money from this drug company that produces this treatment that he's recommending to me or that she's recommending to me. Um, That is, it doesn't mean your physician is doing anything wrong, um, but it just means it's an opportunity for you to have, again, an open and honest conversation with your physician about their relationship with the drug company. Um, Because again, it doesn't mean your physician is doing anything wrong. Your physician may be collaborating in some type of research with the drug company. And as I said before, that can be really important. Your physician can be making sure that the data that's coming out um, for or against a certain drug to be approved is actually accurate. 
So this may be a good thing. But again, it just kind of opens that door for a conversation with your physician um, so that you feel like you can trust your physician and know that the choices that he or she are making for you are coming from the right place. So now let's circle back to the advice that you give your students on managing conflict of interest. Right. So when I'm teaching the students ethics in general, I take sort of that approach that if, if you give a man to fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. So I like to teach the students how to think about these types of things and then let them uh, go out and, and make their own decisions. And so what I want them to walk away with is a critical eye towards how they interact with pharmaceutical companies. As we talked about before, it's kind of a, a tough pill to swallow to think that a pen, a sandwich, a, a free dinner might influence and influence inappropriately the way you prescribe medications. And so exposing them to that, opening their minds to that, I think is really important because the other part of this is patient perception. Um, there have been several recent news articles of executives of top hospitals or organizations um, that have come under fire or stepped down from their positions because they had a relationship with a pharmaceutical company that they did not disclose. And that just looks bad and it undermines people's trust. And so that's the other important part of it is thinking about your actions in terms of how patients will perceive them. You always have to be transparent. You always have to disclose your relationships with uh, drug companies. Um, this is one of those classic examples where the, the cover-up can be worse than the crime. And I'm not even implying that necessarily there is a crime or wrongdoing. Um, but if you're not upfront about your relationships with pharmaceutical companies, then that can get you into trouble in terms of, of patient perception. And that is really important. Uh, there needs to be, a, you know, trust is paramount in the, in the patient-doctor relationship. And then there's other hospitals and organizations that do allow contact. But again, you want to be really um, judicious in those interactions. In American Overdose, author Chris McGreal writes about how drug manufacturers design clinical trials to only answer the core questions that are set by the FDA. And those are, does the drug work and is it safe for those who are prescribed it? As a result, pillmakers try to exclude everyone from their test groups whose medical histories create what they call noise. In the case of opioids, that means purging those with a history of addiction even though they're the most likely to become hooked on drugs. That process is known as enriched enrollment. Dr. Gunderson spoke to that. What I would say about this is that this, again, is why, one, it's important that we have physicians that are involved in these studies, and two, that when these studies are published, that there's transparency about who did what in a study, because oftentimes you'll see a article in a journal, and it will have a long list of authors. And sometimes you have to flip 10 pages after the references to actually see the affiliations of these authors. Um, so it's kind of buried in print there. Um, and it would be helpful if that information was presented up front, um, just so we know that as we're reviewing the study. Um, but I, at least with this data, um, it also showed 
um, the amount of time that funders and academic authors were involved in the data analysis and also in the reporting. And and so that's you know, where you want to um, make sure that you're also maintaining integrity. It is really challenging. And as busy physicians, um, you know, we want to make sure that we can get the most accurate data that helps inform our choices when it comes to our patients. Um, and so we rely um, on uh, intact uh, clinical trials um, to guide our decisions. And so, again, it's, it's just really important to, you know, keep in the back of one's mind that we always have to um, have a critical eye when we're looking at these types of things. You mentioned Purdue earlier, and so as the legal action against Purdue uh, continues, um, I, I think that's going to be very interesting um, as well. And and I've been reading uh, some of those transcripts with, with great interest because, um, you know, one of the phrases they keep saying is, oh my gosh, you know, they, they told this, um, you know, they told all of their drug reps to market OxyContin as hope in a bottle. And honestly, I don't think that type of phrasing is very unusual. I mean, look at any drug ad you see on TV. It, and you know, Look at a Viagra commercial, and it just shows this wonderful life that you're going to have full of adventure and romance if you take this drug. And so, again, you know, you just have to be – these are companies that are – they part of their mission is to make money. Um, and so, again, I'm not saying that that's, you know, evil in and of itself, but you just have to realize that, you know, we're marketing here. And when it comes to, to drugs, you know, we're marketing more than a hamburger here. We're marketing, marketing drugs for cancer, marketing drugs that could have serious side effects. Um, and so, you know, this really has, you know, can have a really profound impact um, on somebody's life and death. Um, and so it's something that we need to just, you know, think about very seriously. Well, no doubt about that. So, and, um, I, I think those, you know, physicians, your job is, uh, is a very, very important job of training those new physicians so that they're just, they go in, walk in fully aware of the big responsibility that they have on their shoulders. Exactly. Dr. Gunderson, what final comments would you like to share with us on ethics and the medical profession and um, what people need to know to protect themselves against that undue influence from the pharmaceutical industry? Well, first of all, I I want to reassure people um, that in the vast majority of cases that they can trust their physicians and their physicians are out there doing the right thing for them. It is not an easy journey to become a physician, and people do it because they care about taking care of people. Um, and so there's always going to be some horror stories out there, like we've discussed. Um, but in the large, you know, in the vast majority of cases, um, you, know, you, can, you can trust your physicians. However, um, you know, it's the digital age. Everybody is bombarded by social media by advertisements, by magazine and television commercials. And I, I think the, the, the best advice that I can give a patient is that, yes, be a consumer of this information, but then make sure that you take it back to your physician and, again, talk to them about that. Ask questions. Advocate for yourself. 
and build that bond of trust um, through these open conversations with your physician. And I also want to tell people that medical education is really changing in a very positive way because I was in medical school only 20 years ago, which may be a relatively short amount of time ago, depending on how you look at it. But we didn't get taught about analyzing the evidence or ethics or pain management. And these are all things that are taught in today's medical schools to a a larger and larger degree. And the more time goes on, the more we realize how important these topics are. And so we're going to be seeing more physicians that have a greater sense of, you know, what their ethical responsibilities are, how to appropriately assess uh, patients who have pain and prescribe their drugs and how to conduct themselves professionally. Well, thank you, doctor. This has been very informative. Great. It's been my pleasure to be here. We've been visiting today with Dr. Elizabeth Gunderson, who is the Director of Ethics at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, Florida. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.